From Public Radio International, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Today, a special report from our continuing series, Red Path to a Green Planet. We travel to Brazil's Amazon to see how red, reducing emissions from deforestation and degradation, could make forests worth more standing than cut down for things like cattle ranching. We want to create uh, mechanisms that puts a carrot out in front of the producer instead of the gun barrel behind his head. And we join Brazilian federal agents on a raid of illegal ranchers. Also, we meet indigenous people fighting to save their forest. Now we're getting to the Surui people. As you can see, this is the region of the Paite people. And you can see the amazing difference of vegetation, of what you can see over there and what is in here. Here you can see the cattle, and there you can see the pristine forest. The red path to a green planet in Brazil, coming up on Living on Earth. Stick around. Support for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation and Stonyfield Farm. From the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios in Somerville, Massachusetts, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Climate scientists estimate the destruction of tropical forests emit as much greenhouse gases each year as all forms of transportation combined. The Amazon of Brazil is the largest remaining tropical forest. So far, the billions spent on conservation and law enforcement have failed to keep an area the size of France from being cut down, and deforestation continues. Some say the least expensive, fastest way to preserve what's left of the world's tropical forest is to change incentives with a mechanism known as RED. Reducing emissions from deforestation and degradation is simple in principle. Make it more profitable to keep the forest standing than cut down. Simple, perhaps, but not easy, as Living on Earth's Bobby Bascom and Bruce Gellerman found as they journeyed to Brazil in search of the red path for a green planet. Bobby and I spent a month traveling through the Amazon. We drove 5,000 long, dusty miles. We just passed a sign that said Porto Velo. 1,029 kilometers. Yep. And that's that's where we're going. Yes, sir. That's how much we need to do. That's Marco. Marco Lima, our guide and driver. He's short, stocky, and fills out his safari shirt. Marco came with all the right credentials. He's a fish biologist, a jungle survival combat vet, and a gifted gabber. He said, well, we have enough forests, and I disagree. Marco picked us up in the special truck he uses for trips to the jungle. It's a heavy-duty suspension job with dual fuel tanks, and just in case, Marco put a machete under the driver's seat. Get stuck out here in the Amazon frontier, and you're in trouble. If you look into the, this vegetation, what you can see that... Watch out, Bobby. Wow, look at that. Look, did you see that? It's just left over there. Fire. The side of the road is ablaze. We're hundreds of miles south of the dense Amazon jungle, driving through scrub savanna grasslands, and fire season is still a month away. But the place is a tinderbox. Sounds like crazy, Bruce, but uh, a fire like this, if in the years we have uh, less rain intensity, this can burn the whole, the whole Amazon. So nobody will come along to put this fire out? Nope, this fire is waiting for the next rain. It could be a long wait. These days, there's less rain in the rainforest because there's less forest. Scientists say deforestation is drying the Amazon. The rainy season comes later than it used to, and fires have become more intense. The fires are usually set by settlers and speculators who slash and burn the trees to clear the land for logs and agriculture. In this part of the Amazon, an acre of forested land goes for about $175. Cleared of trees, that same acre sells for about 1200 
It's a no-brainer. Deforestation pays. The city of Brasilia is a product of that deforestation. In the 1960s, the government built a new capital here. To spur development of the region, they built a concrete jungle at the edge of the Amazon forest. It's here in Brasilia that we met Paulo Moncino. Paulo Moncino studies Amazon ants, but these days he spends most of his time as director of the climate change program at EPOM, the Amazon Institute for Environmental Research. According to Moncino, Brazil is the fourth largest producer of greenhouse gases. And what's really amazing is that three-quarters of those emissions come from the deliberate destruction of the Amazon. It's like a container, a huge container of carbon. If you open that and cut trees, burning trees, you produce a huge amount of emission of carbon, producing more global warming. So the trees store a lot of carbon and you want to keep it in the trees. Exactly. Without Amazon forests, you have a big problem in terms of climate change. 20% of the Amazon is already gone, but still locked within the trees is the equivalent of 50 years of U.S. carbon dioxide emissions. Keeping all that carbon in the trees will take big bucks, tens, maybe hundreds of billions of dollars. To raise it, Moncino advocates red, reducing emissions from deforestation and degradation. He says red is a way to make money from trees without cutting them down. I think that we need an economic mechanism to save a large portion of tropical forests. We are talking about the area equivalent of all Europe. There are many shades of red and ways to fund it. Moncino favors a market mechanism. Money to save the forest would come from selling carbon credits to companies and countries that need to offset their climate-disrupting emissions. Brazil's president, Luiz Inácio Lula da Silva, wants to take a different road to red. Lula's red program is funded by contributions. He wants polluting nations to donate $21 billion to what he calls the Amazon Fund. There would be limited private carbon trading. Most of the money would be controlled by the government. They'd use the funds to monitor and preserve the forest. Alberto Lorenzo works for Lula. He's Assistant Secretary of Sustainable Development and in charge of the Amazon Fund. Red could be a, an important piece of the many sides uh, solution to deforestation and to sustainable development in the Amazon. But so far it's not. We're just beginning to experiment with, with red. You know, the numbers are not even uh, close to the amount of money that is supplied to pecuaristas, to cattle ranchers in the Amazon. Out of the $21 billion Lula's Amazon Fund hopes to collect, just $118 million in donations have come in, and not a single penny has been spent. Meanwhile, Brazil spends $600 million a year to expand agriculture into the Amazon forest. Much of the money goes to a few huge Brazilian cattle ranchers to satisfy the world's soaring appetite for beef. In the last 10 years, per capita consumption of beef has more than doubled in China. And in the last 15 years here in Brazil... Beef consumption is tripled. Brazilians love barbecue. Chahascaria is a cultural institution. At Chahascaria Buffalo in the Amazon city of Manaus, waiters carry long skewers of meat and sharp knives. You can eat as much as you want from any one of 29 different cuts of beef. Well, our people, they really love grilled food. And, of course, as a beef, it's also part of our food here, very cheap food. That's why it really became part of our daily diet. Do you eat beef every day? Quasi sempre. Almost every day. On my day off, I eat fish. 
<laughs> there are people that say that, that, that beef is a problem because it causes environmental concerns. What do you think of that? Olha, influi um pouco, mas isso ainda não é a demanda total. It is true, I agree, but it is not a major fact for the deforestation. A grande razão da devastação mais é desmatamento sobre madeiras das grandes empresas. I think that the reason for the big deforestation are definitely the log, big logging companies. Logging used to be the driving force of Amazon deforestation, but in the 1990s things changed dramatically. Today, cattle is driving deforestation. The Amazon is rapidly being turned into ranch land. It's rush hour trans-Amazon style. We're stuck behind nine cowboys on horseback and a thousand head of cattle. The cowboys are driving the cattle down the middle of the road in the Amazon state of Pará. They use a dog and a behanch made from a steer's horn to keep the herd together. Pará is nearly twice the size of Texas. And what was once dense forest is now cow pasture. Over the past 20 years, the number of cattle in the Brazilian Amazon has quadrupled. Today, 80% of the deforested land in the Amazon is used to raise and graze cows. The deforested area is the size of Japan. The cows are mostly Nalori, bred to survive the intense Amazon climate. The cowboys are also a breed apart, taciturn and tough. They're driving this herd from a pasture in the northern Amazon to a ranch 700 miles to the south. And how long will it take you to transfer the, the, the cattle from where you started to where you're going? 70 days. Around 70 days. You're going to be in the saddle 70 days? That's like the Old West. That's unbelievable. <laughs> Welcome to the north. That's how we manage our life. But life in the Amazon could soon change. Within a decade, Brazil plans to intensify beef production in the region and double its share of the international market. And at the same time, the government wants to reduce deforestation in the Amazon by about 40%. But that's not good enough for Greenpeace Brazil. The environmental group says the goal should be zero deforestation. Their report called Slaughtering the Amazon focused attention on the link between the cattle industry and destruction of the forest. Even Greenpeace was surprised by the news media's reaction. Brazil's leading morning talk show aired a 10-minute story based on the Greenpeace investigation. That hit the note with the Brazilian consumers. Kiko Brito is a spokesman for Greenpeace Brazil. The report, Slaughtering the Amazon, spread like wildfire and reads like an indictment. It charges the Brazilian government with financing the destruction of the forest with billions of dollars in loan guarantees to cattle ranchers. And it provides detailed evidence linking international companies to deforestation of the Amazon. The report tracks their purchase of leather and beef from illegally deforested land. Kiko Brito says slaughtering the Amazon names names. Adidas, Nike, Gucci. As we say in Brazil, this was the first report that gave name to the ox. In other words, we put the names behind the use of cattle to deforest the Amazon. Word of the Greenpeace report hit the Brazilian cattle industry where it hurts, the consumer. Within days, Adidas, Nike, Gucci, and the three largest supermarkets in Brazil had heard enough. They announced a moratorium, promising not to buy products produced from cows raised on illegally deforested Amazon land. When a supermarket says that it will no longer buy meat from deforested areas, it's not doing this because it is a nice supermarket, but 
because they heard something from people who were buying from their shelves. Greenpeace also heard something, angry congressmen from Amazonian states. Brazil's Chamber of Deputies held a special hearing after Greenpeace released its report. One member of Congress shouted, take Greenpeace out in handcuffs. Another demanded Greenpeace accept economic reality. Yes, the Amazon is important, but what are you going to do with the 25 million people living there? Greenpeace organizers were visibly shaken by the angry response they got in Congress and even wondered if it was safe to meet with cattle ranchers in the Amazon the next day. According to Zhao Talucci of Greenpeace, the group often receives death threats, so organizers drive in armored vehicles. From more than 400 murders that happen in the Amazon, not even one is arrested. So there's no governance, there's no law enforcement in the Amazon right now. When we return, an environmental SWAT team tracks down illegal ranchers, and an alliance of cattle ranchers try to enforce the laws of the jungle. You're listening to a Living on Earth special report, Red Path to a Green Planet. Stick around. It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. And our special report, Red Path to a Green Planet, continues in Brazil's Amazon. The peaceful sounds of the Amazon forest at dusk can be deceptive. The Amazon is a dangerous place, especially for environmentalists, and especially in the remote northern state of Pará. It's here that American nun Dorothy Stang lived and worked for 30 years, helping landless poor farmers and fighting against illegal loggers and cattle ranchers. But they're going to protect it so that no loggers or uh, ranchers can ever make anything out of this area that would be detrimental to the biodiversity. In 2005, Sister Dorothy Stang was murdered, shot point-blank six times by hired assassins. She's one of the hundreds of environmentalists in Pará who have been killed over the past few decades. The red mechanism, reducing emissions from deforestation and degradation, is designed to increase the value of the standing forest. If it is to have any hope of succeeding in the world's largest tropical forest, it will have to work in a place where murder is a way of life in the struggle over the land. We rejoin Living on Earth's Bruce Gellerman and Bobby Bascom as they journey to one of the most dangerous parts of Pará with an environmental SWAT team. Officially, the region is known as the legal Amazon, but law enforcement never really followed the millions of settlers who were encouraged to move here in the 1970s. The military government promised land titles and law enforcement to poor migrants, but delivered neither. As we found out, this vast frontier is a lawless, often violent place. We met David Lorenzo, a senior official in Brazil's Ministry of Strategic Affairs. He says today Brazil is still trying to bring the Amazon under federal control. It's an unplanned dynamic resulting in chaos and conflict and violence and deforestation. The Amazon is by far leader in terms of that's related to the, the struggle for land. It's always a problem. The, the, the capacity to enforce rules, laws and policies in the Amazon is very low. We learned firsthand that the long arm of the law doesn't reach far into the Amazon. When we visited Brazil's Environmental Law Enforcement Agency, we were told it has little money. Only four helicopters and 400 armed agents to patrol an area the size of the continental United States. 
Luciano Evaristo points to a wall-sized map of the Amazon in his office. The Amazon is huge, yes, he says. Evaristo is head of law enforcement at IBAMA, Brazil's version of the EPA. He flashes his badge and pulls out his gun and proudly puts on his jungle combat jacket, which still has the tags on it. On his map are 300 pushpins. Each one marks the spot where Obama agents conducted raids last year, most against heavily armed illegal loggers and ranchers. More red is very difficult. A lot of times you get shot at, and we fire back. The problem is especially bad in the Amazon state of Pará. Can we go on one of your busts? Sim. You just need to choose which one. Do you have a bulletproof vest? Will you give us one? <laughs> Do you have a life insurance? Maybe I won't go. If we go, you go. They went, so we went. Vamos. All right, let's go. We drove 500 miles on the Trans-Amazon to the town of Novo Progresso, a backwater in western Pará. Ibama has a brand new office here because residents of the town burned the last one to the ground, along with the federal agent's trucks. Logging and ranching are the lifeblood of the economy here. Environmental police aren't welcome. A helicopter arrives with senior Ibama commanders. They've assembled a team of about a dozen federal agents from around Brazil. The agents will only stay here for about three months and keep to themselves so they don't become targets for assassins. A dozen more state and local police join this raid. They call it Operation Minotaur, named for the mythic Greek creature that has the head of a bull and the body of a man. The commandos carry pistols, automatic weapons, and pump-action shotguns. Many wear bulletproof vests, but not us. The helicopter leads the way. Marco, our guide, Bruce, and I follow in a truck convoy. So, so Bobby, what do you, what do you think? most dangerous areas of Brazil right now on land grabbing it's right here we are in the middle of the fire so should we be scared yeah we have to be very careful now I'm scared yeah right <laughs> we drive for hours along the trans Amazon finally turning onto a path bulldozed through what's left of the jungle satellite photos confirm a tipsters report that there are nearly 45,000 head of cattle being illegally raised here Remarkably, this is in the middle of a national park. What remains of the rainforest is a haunting sight. Charred skeletons of trees slashed and burned. Their gnarled limbs reach skyward, leafless and lifeless. Look at that. It's really devastated. They really whacked the forest here. Yeah, we're talking about at least in this area where we can see two to two and a half thousand acres of open, clear land. Probably, Bruce, this was a big fire. One, one big solid fire. Looks like it's been heavily bombed. So Marco, they, 
we're seeing people on the motorcycles here and they know we're coming don't they oh yeah in these areas when they see Ibama they say there comes the main that's what they say there comes the guys it, it, because Ibama here they know it's the it's a big trouble for them it's really big trouble the water environment Finally, we arrive at a ranch, but nobody's home. A pot of coffee on the stove is still warm. Seems the only thing missing is a welcome mat. The Ibama agents search the place, but they come up empty-handed. Look at this guy. I mean, he's got his uh, ranch house, he's got a satellite dish, he's got beautiful fences. I mean, this guy is, is not trying to hide from you. He's, he's pretty darn obvious. They think this is because Ibama doesn't have a fixed base here that we'll never go after them, but we will. It was the same scene three hours later at another ranch in the National Forest. Again, nobody home. But this time, the Ibama agents disable a tractor, remove the tires, and haul them away. Exhausted and frustrated, the Obama agents say they're not defeated. They say they'll return another day to arrest the rancher. Last year, Obama agents confiscated 400 trucks and tractors in the Amazon from illegal loggers and ranchers. And they confiscated 8 million cubic feet of wood. But we soon learned that enforcing environmental law in the Amazon can have unforeseen consequences. The next day, we get a flat tire in the remote town of Caracol. The owner of the vacant hotel and restaurant offers to sell us the entire town. Nine months earlier, Obama agents busted Caracol's lumber mill, and the community has been out of work since. At the abandoned mill, a young man carrying a baby steps over scraps of hardwood. Could I ask him a couple of questions? But the man doesn't want to talk. So nobody's working here? He's afraid. So what, what do people do here for a living? They fish, a little fish, otherwise they will starve. So what do you make of this place? This is uh, one of the several, uh, you know, um, lumber mills that Obama and all the, the other government agencies, they stop the environmental impact and start a social impact. Okay, you maybe have here at least 80 families with no income. Someone is paying the price. And the price that we see here for the preservation is poverty. Stepped-up enforcement of environmental laws is part of the reason deforestation in the Amazon is down to the lowest level in two decades. But Amazon cattle rancher John Carter says there's got to be a better way. The trick to conservation, or to mainly the Amazon, is to get greed and harness that greed, make that forest focus on keeping the forest standing. John Carter is a horseback-riding, tobacco-chewing, rootin' tootin' cowboy from San Antonio, Texas. Fourteen years ago, after serving as a paratrooper in Iraq, Carter married a Brazilian woman and moved here, to a remote corner of the southeastern Amazon. These days, Carter spends more time in his single-engine Cessna than in the saddle. I came down chasing a dream. It, was, it, was, it had nothing to do with making money or, or financial reasons. It was strictly to live a life of, uh, of adventure and frontier. John Carter's wife comes from a wealthy, influential family. Her grandfather introduced the breed of cattle that's raised in the Amazon. With backing from his father-in-law, Carter started a 12,000-acre ranch along the Amazon frontier in the state of Mato Grosso. That's Agaboa, due west of us. That was a small, teeny-weeny little town when I first moved here. This is a 
marching bands commemorate the 30th anniversary of the city of Aguaboa. The boom town lies in the geographic heart of Brazil, at the center of cow country. The place is perfect for agriculture, flat as Kansas, but four times as large. What was once a forested frontier is now the cutting edge of Brazil's future, and fertile territory for John Carter and his Alancia de Terra, the Land Alliance. Look over here, off to the east over there, around 11 o'clock, all that's our forest reserve. Carter drives us around his ranch. In this part of the Amazon, you're supposed to keep half your land forested, but few follow the law. When Carter bought the place, he decided to let 2,200 acres regrow. He says that choice cost him more than a million dollars and lost productivity. And I'll let it come back into, to come into compliance with the forest code. Do you regret doing that? No, I don't regret it, no. But, I mean, personally I don't. But, I mean, it, it was not a very wise decision. And I, and I don't get paid anything. And I should be getting paid carbon credits for that. Two to three tons a year per hectare that's sequestering. That's, that's a pretty good revenue stream for the ranch. The experience made John Carter one of the biggest cheerleaders for a red mechanism in Brazil. He founded the Land Alliance, and after convincing ranchers he wasn't a CIA agent, signed up 160 Amazon farmers, proving they could do better financially by doing good environmentally. We want to create uh, mechanisms that puts a carrot out in front of the producer instead of the gun barrel behind his head. Since cattle are driving deforestation in the Amazon... The Land Alliance hopes to put consumers in the driver's seat. Carter's Land Alliance is creating a premium brand of beef, guaranteed not to come from deforested land, for which consumers would pay a premium price. In effect, a red mechanism for red meat. His organization has devised a vigorous certification system for member farmers. He's coming into our system. He's taking off his clothes, basically. He's showing us his body and all the defects and he's allowing us to tell him you know, what he needs to do to come back into compliance. So the idea is to make the value of a standing forest more valuable than if you were going to cut it down and use it for cattle, soybeans, and so on. Absolutely. Our goal, hands down, is to buy time. More importantly is that long-term goal, like you said, to make the standing forest at least almost comparable in value to the cleared forest. If it's 30% as valuable as the cleared forest, we're going to have a tremendous impact. It didn't have to be one-to-one. -one. People sense that. There's a lot of goodwill and a lot of people that are willing to uh, try to create uh, a new model. Jamar Brunier is one of those people. Recently, Brunier joined Carter's Land Alliance. 20 years ago, he and his wife migrated from the south of Brazil to Mato Grosso. They came with one suitcase each and a shared dream. Today, they own a granary and 6,500 acres of land. When uh, I bought this land, I didn't have any information from anyone. I simply came with a caterpillar and we cleared everything here. Come and look at down here. We simply cut, chopped down everything all the way to the riverbanks. Land Alliance evaluators scrutinized satellite photos and visited Brunier's farm. They found he had destroyed a thousand acres too much. They gave Brunier a report detailing what needed to be done and the technical expertise to come into compliance. More carrot, less stick. And now, with the help of the Alliance, they came here and told us what to do. And before the government comes here and find me, I'm going to start to replant with the original woods from here, I will do the reforestry. Would you have known that without the uh, Land Alliance? No, I was going to be fined by the government, such a fine that I would never have money to pay. I was going to go bankrupt. 
But these days, it's not the government that worries farmer Jamar Bernier the most. It's a non-governmental organization, Greenpeace. The NGO's scathing report, Slaughtering the Amazon, blames farmers like Bernier for destroying the forest. If NGOs come here to accuse us, what are they going to do? We're doing things right. I will tell Greenpeace my water is clean. What would you like to tell Greenpeace? I really want to tell the guys from Greenpeace that they need to know from where the food comes from, from where the butter comes from, from where the food their kids eat comes from. And I cry because no one comes to hear us what we want to say. They only come here to spank us. That's why I'm crying. Our intention is good, says Amazon farmer Jamar Bernier. This song about the Amazon forest was composed and sung by one of the federal environmental agents who took Bruce and Bobby along on the raids of the illegal ranches. It's really a beautiful song, but uh, I don't speak Portuguese. Uh, Bobby, Bruce, what does it say? Well, it's a really sad song, as you can hear. It's about the destruction of the Amazon, and the song is named after a town and a bird in the forest. Right. That's Jose de Luis Alenca. He's the federal agent who wrote this song, and he came by our hotel room after a long day with the SWAT team and brought his guitar along. So the song is about a town and a forest. It, it sounds a lot like the place that you went to, where you met the young man who hadn't worked for, what, some nine months after the Brazilian feds had shut down the, the town's illegal log mill. Yeah, they shut down the town. It really does bring into stark contrast um, when you're talking about preserving the forest in a mechanism like red, that you also need to think about the millions of people, most of them who are poor, Steve, who live in the Amazon, and how efforts to keep the forest standing are going to affect them. So for Red to work, it's not just a matter of raising the money to pay for it or monitoring the forest, but figuring out who's going to get this dough and and what they'll do with it. Exactly, Steve. And as we found out, Red also has to deal with the indigenous people who live in the Amazon and have been protecting it for thousands of years. They still control a huge part of the forest. Well, we'll be listening. Coming up, the last leg of our journey into Brazil's Amazon. Members of an ancient tribe turn in bows and arrows for laptops and GPS gear to save the forest and their culture. Support for the Environmental Health Desk at Living on Earth comes from the Cedar Tree Foundation.
Support also comes from the Richard and Rhoda Goldman Fund for coverage of population and the environment. And from Gilman Ordway for coverage of conservation and environmental change. This is Living on Earth on PRI, Public Radio International. It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. The last stop on our red path to a green planet takes Bruce Gellerman and Bobby Bascom to a remote corner of the Amazon in Surui Territory. The Surui are an ancient indigenous people who are pioneering a new forest management plan. It's designed to rescue their culture, preserve their forest, and perhaps, just perhaps, help save the planet from catastrophic climate disruption. Chief Almir Surui carefully unfolds a map and spreads it on a table. The Surui have been living here in the southwest Amazon for thousands of years. Yet this map of their homeland is the first of its kind. If you look individually to every single spot, every single creek, what we did here was simply understand deep inside of our wealth, our own people, we know what we have. On the map are places where the Surui harvest cashews and other foods from the forest. And tiny symbols mark sites where shamans perform rituals and the Surui fought historic battles. And what is this? It looks like a little hut. Um local onde foi feito contato com o povo Surui. Pawentiga is the place where there was made the contact with the Surui people. First contact with the Surui was September 7, 1969. That's the day Brazilian government agents first approached the tribe. Settlers soon followed, stealing 80% of the Surui land and bringing new diseases that killed 90% of the people. Today, the Surui are fighting back. We're in the Surui business office in the small town of Cacoal. On a wall hangs a bow and arrow and a long, sharp spear. And on a conference table, a laptop. The Surui are now defending their land with computers, GPS units, and satellite images donated by the U.S.-based Amazon conservation team. The Surui use the technology to create this detailed map of their reserve. I'm going to show you now how do we want to use technology to the protection of our territory. So right now you're, you're using your laptop to zoom in on... Is that your house right there? Here you can see very well how much deforestation we have. And also above here, you can see the, the other indigenous territory. All the whites you can see, all the white spots, these are farms that have already destroyed the forest. To preserve what's left of the forest and replant what's been lost to settlers, Chief Almir has devised a 50-year management plan. It's a pioneering indigenous red project. The Surui hope to profit by protecting their 600,000-acre forest and auction off the carbon stored in the trees. They plan to sell the forest carbon as credits to companies and countries that want to offset their climate-disrupting emissions. To verify their carbon inventory, the tribe uses images from orbiting satellites. In just two generations, the Surui have gone from the Stone Age to the space age. You know, it's giving you a whole different viewpoint on, on, on the world. I mean, when you show this to the people of your tribe, and you show these satellite pictures, what do they say? A gente pensou que essa imagem era de um monstro que gosta de engolir floresta. We thought that these images were something like coming from the eye of a monster who liked to eat forests. And then we thought, well, we can maybe use the eyes of this monster to protect the forest. 
It's 25 bone-jarring miles from Chief Elmir's office to the Sudui tribal village. Our guide Marco drives while we bounce around in back. Elmir sits in front. We travel past fields that have been slashed for their hardwood and burned to make way for cattle ranches and soy farms. All that remains of what was once a dense rainforest are knee-high tree stumps and bitter memories of first contact. We had to give up on our land to survive, okay, to remain alive. I'm not against farms, I'm not against production. The only thing I'm really concerned and that I think the white men should see is that they have to grow with sustainable responsibility. When you see this, does it make you angry? Does it make you... I get first of all sad because I really don't know what, what happened to to a guy like this who simply comes and clear everything. I, I don't know what goes in his brain. Now we're getting to the Surui people. As you can see, this is the region of the Paite people. And you can see the amazing difference of vegetation of what you can see over there and what is in here. Here you can see the cattle, and there you can see the pristine forest. The difference couldn't be more dramatic. Deforestation ends where Surui territory begins. Like a surgeon's knife, the chainsaws of illegal loggers have cut clean, separating dense Surui forest reserve from open farmland. At a sharp bend in the road, we see loggers leaning on dirt motorbikes, and they see us. We get cold, hard stares. I want to stop and talk to the loggers. But Elmir says, oh, no, 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 keep going. Let's not stop, let's not stop. People are going to give us a hard time. Why is that? They threaten us because all this logging here is illegal. I was threatened so many times here. It's very dangerous. Over the past decade, 11 tribal elders in the Amazon have been assassinated. Two were Surui. It was almost three. A few years ago, someone tried to run Elmir off this road. He was evacuated out of Brazil, and when he returned, he was promised protection. But Elmir says that was a joke. Secret security, they were supposed to take care of me. It's so secret that I've never seen. That's quite a trip. We finally arrive at the Suri village. It's a scattering of wood huts with palm thatch roofs. The Surui sleep in rope hammocks and use wood to cook in open fire pits. Next to a vegetable garden are solar panels, and where coffee beans dry, a satellite dish. Here is our tribe. Here you have my father, my mother, my nephews, my brothers. The Surui have extended families and elders are revered. Amir proudly introduces us to his father, the former chief of the tribe. Marco, Bruce, Bob. Marco, Marco. Bruce. Bruce. Bobby. Bobby. He said that his name is Marimop. Chief Marimop's face is lined with tribal tattoos. His son, Chief Almir, has none. The custom ended 40 years ago after first contact with white settlers. Surui chiefs can have up to four wives. So far, Almir has two. He's the critical link bridging the tribe's past with its future. 
Chief Amir is the first of the Surui to attend college. Still, tradition and lore guide his way. My father told us so many times he grabbed his bow and arrow and went to war. Almir proudly retells the story of a time his father, Chief Marimok, defended the forest. Settlers had invaded Surui land and cut down their trees. Chief Marimok blocked the logging trucks. When 200 Brazilian soldiers returned to claim the trucks and trees, they surrounded the Surui. But Chief Marimop stood his ground. And he said to the commander, Commander, I can even be killed, but you will die before I die. But you are the one who's going to decide. You have family, I also have family. Your family will be without you, and my family will be without me. And my sister was translating for him. She was just a teenager. As, as you know, my father doesn't speak Portuguese. And the, the, the commander was like walking backwards, and then he fell on the ground. And then my father pointed a bow and arrow to him and said, throw your gun away. He said, this commander said, okay, I'm sorry, my friend, I apologize. I said, no, 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 friends don't act like this to other friends. Get out of here, get out of my place. And the commander said to all his men, for God's sake, don't do anything to these guys. Let's get out of here. The forest is sacred to the Surui. It's essential for their existence and subsistence. The forest provides. A young woman sits on a low wood stool and with quick, sharp blows from her machete, cracks open nuts she's gathered from the forest, saving the shells and what's inside. Oh, my God, there's worms. Yeah. Worms! <laughs> hey, Bobby. Close look at what she's doing. Oh, those aren't nuts. Those are worms. What are they for? Are those for lunch? Is it for desayuno? For comida? Eh, come. She's cutting the shell. And watch. She cuts the oh, shell. Then she. Beads? Yeah, she's making beads. It's a short hike to the forest where the Surui gather these nuts. As we walk, Chief Elmir details his 50-year management plan. The tribe will continue to protect the forest as they've always done and replant 18,000 acres of trees illegal loggers cut down on Surui territory. All told, the tribe plans to grow a million new trees. So far, they've planted 80,000. I think what we should do is make this a forest again let this area receive the species that always belonged to here. Feel the air. Smell this. So delicious. Not only through our noses, but don't you feel your skin breathing? Can, can you restore the forest to the condition it was before it was destroyed? Pode. Yes, we definitely can. That's why we are researching on areas where today's pasture, because this way we will, through science, understand what kind of species used to live there. And then we can uh, apply to every area according to their needs. This is result of reforestry already. This is also hardwood, mogno. Brazilian cherry. Yeah, how did you choose these trees? Why these trees and not some other kind? The way we thought and planned was let's um, replant 
uh, the trees that suffer the bigger impact. And we also choose fruit trees that can feed our people. And we also uh, picked trees that have big importance on our rituals, things that really make difference for our culture. This plant was identified by the, the, the researchers. This is a medicinal plant. It's a very good anesthesiac for toothache. We chew the leaf. Mm. It's a mint. Mm. Wait for it. Ah, it's numbing. My tongue is totally numb. <laughs> this is very good for toothache and also for ant bites. Have you ever considered to, to market these? Our main idea is to make use of the forest the way it is, keeping it, preserving it. Respecting the forest, using the forest the way it's first of all is going to remain preserved. And then, of course, uh, in a way that we can also benefit not only us, but also the, the rest of the world. What is that? Oh, here they're coming. That's what they're saying. <laughs> The sooner we say when the Akakai bird sings, it's warning that there are other people in the forest watching them. But Almir doesn't need the Akakai to warn him. He knows he's being watched by illegal loggers. But he has work to do in town, so he has us take a different road back so he can avoid their threatening stares. To make sure their forest carbon deals are airtight, the Surui tribe has retained one of the world's largest law firms. And Chief Almir has called upon even A.J. Cardoza, to ensure the red deal doesn't turn into green washing. She's one of Almir's two wives and head of an NGO that helps indigenous people defend their land. For the past three years, we have been preparing the whole tribe, the whole community, to have a project and sell it. The point is, are we going to sell to any company? No. We don't want that. We want to sell these rights to companies that want to protect the environment. Are we going to wash the faces of dirty companies? No. We are not here only to sell. We are here to negotiate with people that are committed to the environment. I think it is good for people from the outside to help repair these destroyed forests. That's Chief Elmir's mother. She survived the diseases of first contact and endured the threats from illegal loggers. Now she puts her hopes in her son's Red Forest project. It's like we're giving, but also receiving. We do the reforestry, and the service will help mankind breathe better. I think help from international institutions is very important to Almer's efforts. This needs to be a model for other indigenous groups and institutions. Indigenous people comprise less than 3% of Brazil's population, yet they control and protect a quarter of the Amazon forest. It's the largest tropical forest left on the planet. Amir, it's, it seems it struck me, it just occurred to me that what you're doing here in this in this village in in, in Brazil is, is going to could change the world. What I need to do 
Let's try to make a better world. I don't want just to be proud of it. I want to be contagious and have the, all the other people coming with me, beside me, in the same idea. A esperança para o mundo, nova realidade. And bring to the world the hope of a new reality. For a month, we travel the reality that is today's Amazon in search of how red might work. We drove 5,000 miles over unpaved roads bulldozed to what's left of the forest. We met politicians and environmentalists, cattle ranchers and farmers, indigenous people and scientists, all who seem to have the same good intentions, sustaining the forest while developing it. But red is an unproven method that will cost hundreds of billions of dollars and require complex systems to monitor. And if red is to work and help stall climate disruption, it will also take a global society that appreciates just what's at stake and finds the will to act. And high in the canopy of Brazil's Amazon forest, the Akakai bird watches and warns, time is running out. Our story about Brazil's Amazon was produced by Living on Earth's Bruce Gellerman and Bobby Bascom, with help from Marco Lima. It's part of our ongoing series, Red Path to a Green Planet. Next week, we travel to Copenhagen and report on the Climate Summit and visit Indonesia's tropical forest to see how red could work there. Living on Earth is produced by the World Media Foundation. Our crew includes Eileen Belinsky, Jeff Young, Helen Palmer, Ike Sreese Kandaraja, Mitra Taj, Ingrid Lobet, and Jessica Elise Smith. With help from Sarah Calkins, Marilyn Gavoni, and Sammy Souza. Our interns are Quincy Campbell and Nirja Parekh. Allison Lirish-Dean composed our theme. Jeff Turton is our technical director. I'm Steve Kerwood. Thanks for listening. Funding for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation, supporting coverage of emerging science and Stonyfield Farm, organic yogurt and smoothies. Stonyfield pays its farmers not to use artificial growth hormones on their cows. Details at stonyfield.com. Support also comes from you, our listeners. The Ford Foundation, the Town Creek Foundation, the Oak Foundation, supporting coverage of climate change and marine issues. The Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, dedicated to the idea that all people deserve the chance to live a healthy, productive life. Information at GatesFoundation.org. And PaxWorld Mutual Funds, socially and environmentally sustainable investing. PaxWorld for tomorrow. On the web at PaxWorld.com. PRI Public Radio International.